Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Welcome to Season 7, Telepractice. It's not just screen time. Welcome to the podcast mini-series, Telepractice, It's Not Just Screen Time, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of our six-part mini-series, Determining Who is the Right Fit for Telepractice, SLP, and Client. This audio course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. I am your host, Karin hartunian Kukayan. I've been a speech-language pathologist for over two decades and working in telepractice for the past 12 years, serving in both special education and healthcare. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Karine Hartunian Kukayan is the host of this podcast and receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and she is also currently the clinical program director at SLP Tele. Her non-financial disclosures are that she is currently the SIG-18 Associate Coordinator for ASHA. Tara Rail receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this episode and is the owner and creator of the telepractice course. She is also the owner of Speechy Keen SLP private practice and speaking business. Her non-financial disclosures are SIG-18 coordinator for American Speech Language and Hearing Association. And now here's a little bit more about our guest today. Tara Rail is a nationally certified speech-language pathologist who owns and operates a private telepractice clinic in Colorado, focusing on social cognition, executive functioning, and the use of technology in therapy. She is co-founder and president of Hacking Autism and the creator of the telepractice course. She has worked with clients in Illinois, California, Colorado, Rwanda, Thailand, Hong Kong, and the Philippines in public schools private practices, and via telepractice. Welcome, Tara. Thank you. All right. And before we dive into our learner objectives, we would love to hear a little bit more about how you began your journey as an SLP and then came upon telepractice. Sure. Yeah. I uh, graduated from a little known university over on the East Coast called Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is in the town of Indiana, but in the state of Pennsylvania, like our one claim to fame is that we're the hometown of Jimmy Stewart. I was actually a deaf ed major who made the transition over becoming a speech language pathologist. From there, I worked in the public schools for a few years and then moved into private clinic. And the private clinic I was working at at the time was well known internationally. And so we'd have clients who would come in internationally for intensives and then go back home. And it was just heartbreaking to see all these clients going back to home countries where they wouldn't have the same support that they could have if they lived close to that clinic. So I actually launched that clinic's telepractice program and started doing telepractice there. And when I decided to leave and start my own private practice, I just continued with telepractice and actually predominantly do it internationally, but do have clients here within the United States as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. So today we are going to cover some learner objectives. And so we are going to cover identifying qualifying skills for SLPs when beginning telepractice. We're also gonna identify misconceptions about client qualifications for telepractice. And finally, describe some key ways to assess a client's ability to participate in telepractice. And I have a hunch much, much more. (laughs) Let's go ahead and start with, what are some important considerations as a SLP thinking about telepractice? One of the things I hear a lot about people wanting to kind of jump into telepractice is whether or not they're tech savvy, whether or not they're early adopters of new technology, whether or not they're comfortable with 
web conferencing, computers, troubleshooting computers, cell phones, tablets, all those pieces. And while being tech savvy is a huge benefit to telepractice, I don't think it's necessarily what one needs to be a good telepractice SLP because I think the tech, well, it is a big part of telepractice. It's still not the biggest part of what we're doing, which is really using our speech therapy skills actively, you know? So I think really it's more about that willingness to learn, that willingness to try new things, to watch all the YouTube videos, take all the webinars, do all those courses to really get comfortable with the tech in order to use your skills in another setting, per se, kind of removing that technology. Similar as if we were switching from the schools to private practice or a hospital to the schools, kind of gaining that comfort with a switch in setting, but still being able to use those same skills and really a lot of creativity. The one thing I've seen now doing it well over a decade in telepractice has been really just that need to constantly be creative and being able to pull out things because the technology, there isn't always that game for that interest that our client has. There's not always that perfect therapy material already on the internet for what our aphasia client needs to work on or what our young adult needs for those life skills and transition skills or that college student needs and really being able to be creative and find ways to still work with that even with that difference of time and space a lot of times when working by a telepractice. So what are some myths about what makes a good telepractitioner? Some things that we think are true but may not necessarily be true. I have often heard I'm too old to switch to telepractice. I've heard that quite a few times and my favorite story to kind of combat that is one of my now now dear friends who's actually took my course during COVID and took some of my webinars and we just started emailing and communicating. She's actually 80. And she's a speech language pathologist and an audiologist and has a few additional degrees because she's one of those people who just loves to continue to learn. And she jumped into telepractice and she's, I always say when I grow up, I want to be Judy. She's just been amazing at everything she's done and like that constant willingness to learn really there. And I, I think it's it's not a matter of, you know, well, I, I wasn't doing it during COVID. You know, I've heard people who said, you know, was either on maternity leave or, you know, I was not practicing then I was raising my kids or I was, you know, helping a sick family member. So I didn't have that COVID experience. And I almost think that's a benefit for a lot of people because I think the COVID experience was such a crash course and such a stress-induced situation that now it's almost you can step in without that kind of experience kind of almost haunting you in some ways to kind of what telepractice is normally for those of us who are doing it pre-COVID and are continuing to do it, which is this ability to really learn beside your clients, to become an expert in a new type of setting and to be able to reach clients that not necessarily be able to work with just based on your locale versus their locale. So I think it's really about like that constant willingness to learn, that constant willingness to see telepractice differently, especially if you did do it during COVID, realizing that normal telepractice is much different than the COVID experience so many people jumped into and really adapted and had to flex into and were willing to kind of embrace in order to keep serving their clients. But it's really a different experience once you're on the other end and we're not in this crisis mode, we can actually choose telepractice rather than having to do telepractice, you know, and it is a new skill set. You know, it's not necessarily that we can't translate all the same skills out of a private practice or a school. It's different managing clients and managing sessions when you're not there physically, you know, and that client goes under the table or they just get up and walk out of the room. You can't chase them by a telepractice. There's there's skill sets to learn. But I think that a big myth is that, you know, either I didn't do it during COVID. So I, I, you know, I'm behind the ball or I'm too old to do it. Or again, like I was mentioning before, I'm not tech savvy enough to do it. And all those things, that willingness to learn, having that willingness to learn there and that willingness to explore this, I think is really what's needed to kind of begin that journey and see if it's a good fit. Yes. And I completely agree. Having that open-minded mindset is key. If an SLP wants to consider telepractice, how can they assess for themselves if it is a good fit for them? You know, a big thing I tell people all the time is reach out and see if somebody will let you kind of shadow. A lot of that stops in grad school. And I like to argue that it shouldn't stop in grad school. You know, that we should be able to like see what other people are doing within our field. We have such a huge scope in our field and kind of starting back at that beginning of, I want to observe some other people who've been doing, who've been doing it for a while, who enjoy it and see, you know, what it really can look like and what are some different ways it can look. I think there's a lot of kind of self-reflection you have to look at too, because telepractice has a different frustration level than I felt when I was in person with clients. You know, it's not just the client, but it's also the tech malfunctioning, your computer malfunctioning, Zoom malfunctioning, whatever platform you're using. And so there's a lot of introspection you need to do to make sure that like, am I going to get easily frustrated or can I kind of roll with the punches here when things don't necessarily go the way they need to go? You know, we heard a lot during COVID about Zoom fatigue. 
I think that's a real thing. A thing I would often hear pre-2020 was, oh, you're a telepractice SLP, so you're just too lazy to go into a clinic. You're too lazy to put on dress clothes. Is that what this is? And it was a really different experience once people had the 2020 experience and realized like, oh, I'm exhausted from being on Zoom all day. It's a different type of energy. You know, I worked a lot in preschools when I worked in public schools, and that's a different type of energy, being on your knees and chasing kids around and jumping into classrooms. That's a different level of energy than telepractice takes. But again, it's a different type of energy and realizing whether or not that really matches your energy and that matches where your stamina is, I'd say. And also just realizing that there's a lot of stress on the body of sitting in front of the computer all the time. We've got not a lot of research necessarily in telepractice yet in this field, but when we look at businessmen and women, you know, who have these white collar office jobs, you know, there's a lot of information coming out just health wise of, you know, how much more important it is to have a standing desk or even these walking desks, these things that, you know, we haven't really looked into yet within our field, but it's a lot of exhaustion on your body, even just being in front of the computer and the impact on vision and the heat coming off of computers and, you know, sometimes not even seeing natural sunlight the day, depending on what your work hours are. There's a lot of impact on the physical body as well that I think people need to be aware of and explore before maybe jumping in whole hog into it. Definitely. And what are some things that people can do if they have the technology fail on them? It's a sense of having the rug pulled out from under your feet, isn't it? When you're in the middle of a session, what are some things that people can do if that were to happen for the first time? The way I describe it to people who are just stepping into telepractice is when technology fails on you in an in-person session, the plan for your session changes. When technology fails for you in a telepractice session, if you can't roll with the punches, you can actually, it ends your session and can be a huge impact. You know, there's also an ethics consideration there when if the session, we don't have a good connection or technology is not working, can we ethically continue this session, is this an actual equivalent to in-person session that we're having here? You know, so I always say, always have a backup plan. I always have a backup plan with parents. I always have in my files documented phone number. I always see who's in the house. As soon as I call one of my clients, like, is there anybody else in the house in case we need to troubleshoot? Sometimes sessions do go down. Sometimes sessions will come in and out. I've had a session that's ended every four minutes. And after the third or fourth time that that's happened, you know, we've had a call it or we've had a switch to another device, you know, or for my client, it was an internet issue for their hardwire. We, okay. Can we hotspot to a cell phone? Like what are our other options here to get it? But knowing what the other options are and knowing how to troubleshoot in those situations is partially a learned skill once you've had that happen a few times, but it is another skill that I think a lot of experienced telepractitioners can walk you through what their situation is. And for me, it's, it's knowing what our other options are in the home, who else is in the home to support, whether it's an adult client, like I have adult clients who still sometimes need support. Maybe they're not the most tech savvy person in the house, or I've got a preschooler who can't get me help, you know, and knowing who else in the house and knowing what other internet backup options we have and device options we have too. Did the iPad just die? What can we switch to? Things like that. Definitely. I think being prepared helps a lot in a lot of areas. Another quick question about Zoom fatigue, a little bit more information on that. What are some things that a new telepractitioner can do? What are some good habits during the day to prevent the deterioration of your body, essentially? Scheduling breaks, for sure, which is like I'm preaching to the choir here because I'm not good at scheduling breaks. I'm much better at cramming it in as much as I can. But making sure you schedule breaks to get away from the technology and being aware that if you've been in front of the computer a long time, it's not necessarily a break to then go leave and pick up your cell phone and then scroll Instagram or Facebook, but actually like even step outside. And I say that as somebody who's in Colorado right now with a raging snowstorm going on outside currently, like even just stepping outside, getting some fresh air, being away from a screen for a little bit, giving your vision a break, getting that fresh air and moving your body as much as you possibly can. Like, especially it's great when I work with my younger kids, cause I'll push my chair back. I have a wide angle camera. I have multiple wide angle cameras that I use so I can get up and I can move around my office during the session. I encourage them to kind of get up and move around because my kids get Zoom fatigue too. If they, even just with one session, much less if they back-to-back sessions with other providers and things like that. So making sure that I'm modeling it for my clients for not only my benefit, but their benefit as well, but making sure to move, making sure to get fresh air and making sure to realize that this counts as screen time. So giving yourself your brain and your eyes a break from that screen time as well when you get off as well. That's a very good reminder. We are in a giving profession and it's really important that we take care of ourselves. So you got a good understanding of what makes the SLP a good fit for telepractice. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about 
the clients themselves. So what are some common misunderstandings you've seen for clients who are a good fit for telepractice? Common misunderstanding I most often see and the most often I get people reaching out to me asking for advice on is actually which clients are not good fits is almost where it more goes to like eliminating a client as a good fit. And I find that while I understand that perspective, we have to kind of shift and take a different perspective on this because we cannot eliminate clients simply based on diagnosis, based on their location or based on their behaviors. And yes, I've seen all three tried or done by providers before where like, I just, nope, this diagnosis, nope, we can't do telepractice. They're not a good fit. And I like to remind people that just like our sessions have to be equivalent in person, it's same in how much we try to make adaptations for our clients. So just as much as I can't say that they wouldn't be able to come to my therapy room because of a diagnosis or they wouldn't be able to receive, I cannot sit in an IEP meeting and say this child can't receive speech services because they have this diagnosis. So I'm not going to serve them whether or not they need it. I need to be able to document, show that I've tried a lot of different options and Trust me, I've had a lot of different clients over the years, and we've had to do a lot of different types of adaptations and trying new things and really working with the team, which is why it's important to make sure that whether you're working with children or adults via telepractice, that you have family support, whether it's their spouse, whether it's a parent, whether it's a caregiver, whether it's somebody in the SNF with them or in the rehab facility, that we have support there because really being able to adapt and figure those situations out is really a team effort to really support that client. All right. So what are some issues that are related to eliminating based on diagnosis? And what does ASHA have to say about all of that? You know, one of the things I hear a lot is AAC. And now I want to clarify this. If you have no experience or knowledge in AAC, it might be a matter of you're not eliminating the client based on the AAC. You're trying to find them a therapist who has experience with AAC to make sure that we're not holding them back and they're actually offering them the support and helping them reach their goals, those pieces. But a lot of times I'll see AAC because, well, I can't see their device, you know, or they use eye gaze or, you know, situations where, well, I'm limited in vision because of telepractice. So this just isn't going to work. I've also seen things like diagnoses when we have like oppositional defiance disorder or demand avoidance, things like that, where people have been like, nope, because, you know, they won't come into the session or anxiety. He keeps hiding from the camera. Like, I can't get him here, those pieces. So I I see a lot of people trying to eliminate, like I said, based on diagnoses and behavior. But Asha says, telepractice sessions, we have to be equivalent to in-person. And in both in how well we provide the session, provide the therapy, or working towards the goals, but also in how we work with our clients, you know? And so just the same as if I had a client who was too anxious to come into my therapy room, okay, well, how can I meet them? How can I shift this? What is it that's actually making them anxious? How can I meet them in the middle and see if we can actually make this work for them? Because for some families, telepractice is actually, you know, it's just a choice. Like, you know, we'd love to not drive to a therapy clinic, For some families, it's not a choice. This is the only option they have based on their location, based on specialist locations. So how can we work as a team? How can we be the professional and work to see how we can make these adaptations happen? Because Ashley says, ethically, we have to try and we have to document that all the things that we have tried before we maybe transition a client to another situation. And sometimes we have to be willing to say, maybe it's not necessarily the client. Maybe it's the relationship between the client and clinician. And I think most of us who've been in the field long enough have met a client where we just don't work well together. Somebody else with a different personality or a different therapy style or a different therapy training would be a better fit. And that's an okay decision too, but we have to document why we've come to that conclusion and the things that we have tried, not only for the client's benefit, for our protection, but to make sure that the next therapist as well can see things that have been tried. The parents know that things have been tried, educated on why we're trying these things, what we're trying to do to update adapt, you know, the spouse or other family members for our adult clients, you know, all the things that we've attempted when it comes to adapting the technology or the type of therapy sessions. There's a lot of flexibility we have. You know, we've got our code of ethics and we have the laws and around that we have the ability, like I mentioned before, to be really creative to see if we can make teletherapy a viable option for clients who initially we might think wouldn't be a great fit. I have clients who I had my doubts when we first started and they have done fantastic when we've made the adaptations we've needed. I have a client who has extremely high anxiety. The first three sessions, we couldn't even get them into the room. And now they jump into the room every time because now we've 
we have a set schedule. We have a set routine. We have the things that he knows that are his job when he comes into the session, you know, to the point where he's like pushing mom out of the way when she connects up like, wait, I have to do my job. You know, we were able to make those adaptations when at the beginning, I didn't know if it was going to work, but I was willing to give it that try. So I think it's important not to blame the telepractice, just Mm -hmm. things not working. And would love to hear more about specifics as to what kind of adaptations you had to make for clients. We can, you know, dive into some specifics related to diagnosis. I did see a question come through that might be appropriate to address at this time regarding parents being present during the whole session, if you want to kind of address those areas, some more specifics regarding how adaptations have helped clients that are more challenging, like the ones with autism and AAC. For example, for the client I was just mentioning, who has really high anxiety on top of other diagnoses, for him, it was just the anxiety of that transition, that transition to the session we realized. Once we realized it wasn't me, you know, I wasn't, you know, he wasn't scared of me per se. It was just that transition from something else in. And we realized it was impacting a lot of transitions. So not only was working on helping him transition to my session, helping our sessions, we were looking at ways that now, how can we translate this to help him transition in school, to help him transition from home to other locations, pieces like that. And for that, you know, I have a lot of stuffed animals and characters around my room. And so we play hide and seek since we're on video, where one character will move from one place in my room and it'll be somewhere else when he comes onto the session. So that's one of his jobs when he comes on is to see if he can spot it or I tell him who has moved somewhere else in the room. Just something that's helped him kind of move into the session, have a reason to come into the session has helped. You know, when it comes to AC, I find that that's where kind of becoming creative technologically is really important. So especially if you're using a platform that allows more than just you and the client directly in that session, I always say the more the merrier when it comes to camera angles. So, you know, if it's a situation of I can't see the AAC device, okay, well, let's get another camera in there. Can somebody who's there as the support person or can a family member come in? Can they call in from the phone and position the phone over the AAC so you can see what the client's actually selecting, so you can see what they're looking at? I've seen some great telepractice sessions with AAC where people are actually using green screens up behind them and they're actually projecting the same image of what's on the board for the AAC device up behind them to be able to show large and visually appealing ways, what we're going to click or where to find certain things or what we're expecting them for modeling, things like that. So there's a lot of ways that we can use technology to be really creative, honestly, in ways we wouldn't necessarily be able to in person. We can't really blow anything up that big, assuming you don't have an old school overhead projector on your hand and transparencies. You know, there's a lot of really cool things we can do when it comes to telepractice. You know, I've had a lot of clients where I've used 360 cameras which there's a lot of really great new ones coming out right now where we've had the 360 camera and therefore the client can move. If sitting still is a problem, I have a big rule where my clients are not expected to sit still if that's going to be harmful to them or it's going to be painful to them or it's going to cause more struggle in our session. So we've had it set up where we've had a 360 camera, a really wide angle camera if it's a limited space. So they can get up, they can move around and I can still engage with them. They're still talking to me, they're still on topic, but I'm not having this arbitrary expectation that they're sitting quietly in their seat with their hands on their lap and using a quiet voice, they're getting to be them and I get to meet them part way. And that's always my biggest rule is how, instead of making the client do all the work to connect with us via telepractice, how, what can we do? What adaptations can we make to really meet them halfway? Amazing. Love it. I know probably folks that may not have access to resources would find this challenging. Do you have any comments on if somebody's not able to access a 360 camera, what they might be able to do in a situation like that? Yeah, my favorite thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is that libraries have been making a big switch over to what's called libraries of things. And so a lot of libraries, maybe not even the library directly in that area, but in a surrounding area, and sometimes you can even do it by interlibrary loan, will have webcams available, will have laptops and tablets available if there's a problem with the system in the home. And even especially post-COVID, a lot of them have hotspots that can be borrowed by families. So if internet's down for some reason in their area, they can actually go check out internet with their library card. And this is a really great experience anyways for families because I feel young families especially but even older families I feel like people are forgetting that the library exists and so it's not only just pick up the hotspot 
Well, you're there, you know, I can check the library catalog of any library thanks to the internet. So I'll go ahead and I'll be like, hey, your library has these three books. So while you're picking up the hotspot this week, can you pick up these three books? Because we're going to talk about it in the session, or these would be three great books to read that are using the language that we talked about in the session, or and some of them have a lot of learning tablets now and things like that, which I found not only great for kids, but those that have the YouTube access, even for older generation to be able to you know, watch modeling for some of my life skills, for some of my students being able to watch, you know, I can send them specific links to a few YouTubes to kids, young adults in their twenties of like, okay, watch a couple of these videos. And then we're actually going to practice the skill in our session this week and kind of use those libraries, but give them access to libraries, make them more comfortable going into the libraries and learning that own resource within their community as well. I love that. And any other comments about location and what what can be done? What are some barriers to location and what can be done in regards to those barriers? I think we saw it a lot in COVID that we were running into one impacts on internet speed with everybody being home and using the internet bandwidth in a neighborhood. I saw it a lot in the United States. I saw it even more with my international clients. Some of my international clients are on fiber. Some of them are on satellite internet still. And while we can get good speeds, everybody's on the internet, not necessarily. So it was a big, again, troubleshooting with the whole team, the whole family, everyone I'm working with of like, okay, during our session, nobody can be streaming Netflix. Nobody can be watching YouTube. You know, nobody can be playing the video games to make sure we had the bandwidth that we need in our session. The family all really came together as a team to realize, okay, for these 30 minutes or for this one hour, okay, you know, we're all going old school and picking up some books or we're doing the dishes or something, you know, while the session's going on. You know, um, a lot of people don't realize typhoon season is a thing in Asia. And when you have satellite internet and a typhoon comes in, the internet can decline. And so then we're looking at a lot of adaptations and even, you know, ASHA allows us to do asynchronous therapy sessions. So there's a couple of times where we had to really look into that asynchronous side of things around the typhoon storms coming through to be able to have that back and forth and still have a really ethical and great therapy session, you know, and great conversation back and forth, just not necessarily in that synchronous piece. Um, a lot of families are at home, even now, post COVID, a lot of families haven't gone necessarily back to the office. People are still working at home. I think some therapists forget that aspect, you know, of there's not always a quiet space in the home. The home might not be big. The home might, you know, all the rooms might be taken up. Where are we going to find that quiet space for that session? Well lit with solid internet and quiet. And I think a lot of people that creative side of like, okay, how do we think outside the box? I have one client right now who's a young adult. We have our sessions every week in their garage. And a lot of people will be like, well, garage is an appropriate spot for therapy. Why? Nobody's hearing us in the garage. It's quiet. He's not getting bombarded with the household noises. Everyone in the household isn't listening to our session or he's not trying to hear me over other noises or talk over other noises. He's got a great light set up. He's just got a folding table and a chair out there, but that's where he's chosen to do a session because the house doesn't have another space for him where he can have that quiet kind of space away from the rest of his family. And it was a really creative troubleshooting of, okay, well, let's try here. Nope, too loud. Let's try here, you know, until we kind of found that space. And now, no, I'd necessarily be doing therapy in a garage, but we do therapy in a garage and it works just, I've done therapy inside of a closet. Why? Because that was the one quiet space. We went into mom and dad's walk-in closet, closed the door, and that's where we could have kind of the quiet space when everyone was home and, you know, it's pre-dinner hour and everything's kind of loud and rambunctious at home. What what are some of our options here? You know, I've, I've done therapy in a lot of really creative locations, I feel like, based on clients' needs. And, you know, my clients know I, I very well educate them on things that we need to take into consideration when it comes to privacy, when it comes to internet, when it comes to their location, because we've had a lot of people going to grandma's house or going to aunt's and uncle's house during COVID, you know, if their families were first responders, were nurses and doctors, things like that. So my clients all know the rules when it comes to their location and my location and licensure rules. And, you know, I always remind them if you put my license in jeopardy, we might not be able to have sessions anymore because we're putting my license in jeopardy and I might lose my license. And my families are all also very protective over my license that we can continue our sessions. So it helps again, helps us all continue to be on the same team and work together, but having to be really creative with how we're going to make it work so that it works for everyone involved. What are some creative activities that you've done in these kind of out of the box, so to speak, locations? 
Uh, we do, especially for my ones who are heading off to college and my young adults in their 20s and stuff, we do a lot of life skills. So I do a lot of therapy in the kitchen. <laughs> I joke a lot that I, I spend, I think, more of my time in the kitchen in therapy than I do in my actual home at this point. I do lots of cooking, lots of teaching them simple like one-pot meals and simple meals for cooking for when they get to college or for when they're moving out to their own apartment. We do a lot of cleaning in the kitchen. So I work in social cognition, executive functioning. Those are the only clients I work with. And so a lot of the executive functioning of figuring out how to clean a kitchen, figuring out how to identify mess and where things are stored and how to organize their kitchen, pieces like that. I've done definitely done therapy with the computer sitting on top of the washing machine and dryer because we're working on making sure we have a weekly routine of you know, starting our wash and moving it to the dryer and folding our clothes and putting them away. You know, I've done a lot of therapy on the floor of rooms and stuff because we're working on cleaning or reorganizing our school binders and things like that. Yeah, I've been quite a few interesting places. I've also done therapy from a hotel room in Disney before. So I've, done, I've been in quite a few interesting places for therapy session, but especially focusing on that social cognition and executive functioning, I find that I've been able to really use the environment more and be more creative. So I'm definitely not locked into this place. I had my dog was a therapy dog and some of my clients used to be my in-person clients before I switched, moved out of state, switched to hundred percent telepractice. And I've had sessions where they're like, I had a bad day. Can I see chief? And I've definitely like hopped onto my cell phone and gone downstairs to my own living room. And we've sat on the floor of my living room with my family all out of the house. So privacy wasn't a concern. And they've sat there and just talked to my therapy dog for a minute. And we've had these great beneficial sessions, him talking to my therapy dog and me asking questions or me saying, hey, chief might not know this piece of this, or can you answer this question? And finding they're much more willing to talk to my giant dog than necessarily me on that day on those hard days. So it's really about being willing to be creative and try different spaces and I'll be in the kitchen and they'll be in the kitchen. So therefore we're cooking together and it really kind of gets them into that sweet spot of kind of forgetting that screen is there and really getting more into just conversing with me and we're cooking together. And then we're eating our pasta together and talking about what we want to do different next time. Love it. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the issues around location. If the client goes on vacation or if you're away and you want to work, can you comment on different scenarios that might come up with therapist location or client's location and what you suggest? Yeah, the teletherapy golden rule is that you need to be licensed where you sit at the time of the session and where the client sits at the time of the session. Residency doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter if they're a resident of California. If they're in Wyoming, I need a license Wyoming. Are there exceptions to this rule? Absolutely. There are some states who will let give you a certain amount of time. Like, you know, you can do two weeks worth of sessions, but then you have to be licensed. Some states have now adopted telepractice licenses, so you don't have to go for the full license. It's a quicker, shorter process with less requirements. You know, hopefully by next year, we'll have the Internet State Compact, you know, and that will open a lot more options for travel and options as well. But right now, I always say follow the golden rule until you hear otherwise. So absolutely, if a client's like, hey, things have happened, you know, or something's going on with the family or, you know, grandpa was here, but you know, now he's going to go stay with my sister for six months. We'd like to continue therapy while he's staying at my sister's house. What do we need to do is contact the licensing board of that state. Always contact the licensing board. You know, it's okay if you want to go to Facebook and ask for the best email for the licensing board, but please don't believe somebody on the Facebook group or on the Reddit board or on Twitter who says, oh no, you can do it. It's just fine. You know, I asked them. That's a great starting point, but make sure you have it in writing from the licensing board of that state that you can do telepractice with this client for six months. And nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you they want you to have a full license. So you need to have a license again, wherever they sit, where you sit, residency doesn't matter. And most states, it doesn't even matter how much time you're going to be there. They all want you to have that license. If you're seeing a client who's located in their state during the sessions, same applies internationally as well. If your clients are internationally based, if there's a license in that country, then you need to contact that licensing board in that country about doing telepractice to that country. And again, nine times out of 10 that I've run into doing predominantly international telepractices, they want you to have a license in their country as well. Very good. Thank you so much for explaining that. I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit specific to what ASHA says regarding accommodations for clients. So what are some common factors that as a teletherapist, one should consider and some accommodations that we could possibly make in regards to those? 
Yeah, Akshaw on the practice portal actually has a lot of information. It can be a little bit cumbersome to navigate, in my opinion, but they have a lot of really great information if you're willing to kind of scroll and search and even ask. I find a lot of Facebook groups, a lot of people are willing to kind of give you like the, okay, click here, scroll down to here, you'll find this here. I find that a lot of people don't realize when it comes especially to Ash and Ethics, we actually have minimum speed requirements we have to have in order for it to consider it an ethical therapy session. So, you know, one of the accommodations I always make is that, well, I didn't know their internet wasn't down. It wasn't fast enough, you know, or they're having internet problems. So before every session, for example, I will always have my clients do a speed test on their computer and they send me the screenshot before the session. Therefore, I've got it documented that their internet was adequate when we started. You know, I always speed test before today, before this podcast, you know, I always speed test before my sessions to make sure that there's nothing that might be a hiccup on my end or with my system, those pieces. Looking at other accommodations, you know, anything that we can do that can make sure that we're not eliminating that session or impacting the integrity of those sessions, you know? So sometimes it is a matter of, you know, we talked earlier, you don't have to be tech savvy, but the more you get into telepractice, you just find you naturally become more tech savvy. So you end up slowly understanding of like, oh, I can't give cursor control because they're using an iPad or a Chromebook. So either you decide to figure out the workarounds within the Chromebook or you you know, are learning other workarounds. So again, you're not eliminating options during the session. You're enhancing that session by finding those ways that you can still work with those clients. You know, I always say that we need to make sure that our sessions are dynamic and relevant. And we have a huge epidemic going of this like talking head, you know, where we like our clients are, we're talking, 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 but we need to give them some autonomy in that session. And if we can make that session multi-sensory in any way, we're just enhancing that. And humor, again, research shows us that humor will boister it as well, those sessions. So how can we bring in that humor and that multi-sensory approach? And so again, it's how many accommodations can I make? What else can I do? You know, my client uses a switch. Great. Then you are working with that, you know, that team at the school or at the rehab facility of how can we work that into the session so that they can hit the switch to raise their hand in the middle of the session. I have lots of adaptations on my own system where I can press a button and I can change my cameras and I can change my viewpoint. How can I work that in for my clients? Again, to give that, them autonomy, make those accommodations so that that session stays dynamic, relevant, and multi-sensory for them all. Nice. So let's go ahead and start talking a little bit more about what are things that the SLP needs to consider when identifying if a client is a good fit for telepractice. And then we can go into those different factors that ASHA considers as well. The biggest thing is trying first. You know, so often, you know, we'll get this client, we'll get this new report, we'll be looking at this new report and we'll be like, you know, trying to make that decision ahead of time. And my rule of thumb is always try first. Try that first time. And I always talk with my parents ahead of time or my family members or the support people on the team ahead of time of going, look, this first session, we're just going to try. We're going to see what happens. And if, you know, we end after five minutes, fine, we end after five minutes, but we're going to see, you know, how we can set them up for success at a time and really looking at all the factors and really having those open conversations with their team ahead of time, making sure you're not going in blind. You know, so often if we work in a building, whether it's a hospital, a clinic, a school, you know, we'll go in and we can kind of observe maybe ahead of time and get that feeling. Well, we might not necessarily have that option. We can, if we've got somebody who's willing to walk in with that video camera or call in with that Zoom and let us observe. But what else can we do? We can talk to the team, the people who know them best right now, whether that's parents, whether that's teachers, whether that's rehab specialists or other SLPs in person who you're consulting in with or an OT or anything like that. And let's see what is working for them. What do we need? What adaptations do they need? So it's really my all. Rule of thumb always is talk to the team first and give it a try first before we even start eliminating. And then as we're actually trying, then being sure that we're asking why. I think it's really easy for us, especially the more experience we have within the field to be like, oh, well, they're doing this, so it must be for this. And making sure that we're taking a step back, especially in telepractice and asking why. Why is this happening? Why is this going on? I've absolutely had sessions where I'm hidden when I'm working in EI and the kid just doesn't like a person watching them on the computer because that can be kind of understandable. I don't want some strange person watching me in my home while I'm walking around my home doing things, you know, so I'll have it where the camera's positioned so I can see them, but the client's not looking at me. So therefore I'm not scary. I've had parents who've absolutely put an earbud in their ear. And now I'm the talking voice in the parent's ear and saying, hey, look, I was picking up those blocks. Let's make a comment on the color of the blocks while he's building the blocks. And therefore, I'm helping and empowering the parent, you know, while cutting down on the reason maybe that before I would have eliminated 
that client as a candidate for telepractice because they're not sitting still. They're screaming every time they see my face on the computer screen, things like that. Okay, well, how can I empower the team? How can I empower the parent instead? And maybe we can work on this a different angle to make this successful for everybody involved, but making sure that we're thinking outside of the box and stop putting all that demand again on the client, making sure that we're seeing how far we can meet them in the middle. If we can meet them beyond that 50%, if I can go 80% of the way and only make my client put in that 20%, that's fantastic because I'm putting in that extra effort to help them join in and be successful. What are some accommodations for folks that maybe don't have manual dexterity? Maybe they can't really operate the keyboard. You know, I think you've already mentioned about not being able to sit still, but just kind of curious if they're really not able to engage with the screen and if they can't really manipulate a mouse, what are some things that you would suggest in those scenarios? You know, I think we got to not be afraid to go off technology. Like the webcam might still be there to connect us, but everything else doesn't necessarily have to be Nearpod and YouTube and Pink Cat Games and Ultimate SLP and Lesson Picks. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, all on the computer. How can we move off that computer? You know, I have to absolutely set things ahead of times. You know, I have one client right now who the only way I can really connect is arts and crafts. You know, that's the way she kind of opens up. So we're constantly doing arts and crafts. That often means that I'm kind of sending mom a list and saying, hey, is it possible for you to gather these things up before our session? Is it possible to print this before our session? You know, maybe we're going to work on something that's 2D on the paper, you know, for my clients who worked with SLPs and clients who, you know, again, the mouse and the keyboard, it's strange for a lot of our clients right now, especially our younger clients, because many of them aren't on computers with a mouse and keyboard. They're on tablets. They're on phones. So that's kind of really a strange experience to them. So, okay. Do we have access to a touchscreen laptop? A lot of laptops have that option. No, not necessarily. Okay. Well, then you know what? I know that I'm going to lose some of my functionality if they go to the iPad. I'm not going to be able to give cursor share and things like that. I'm going to lose some of those options. And will my client be able to engage more because it's a device that they're more comfortable with? If my client has that dexterity piece, again, I'm pulling in that team. How can I work with this as a team? You know, why would I put a demand on them for our teletherapy session that I wouldn't necessarily expect of them in person. Okay, if I was in person, what kind of activities, what kind of work would we be doing in person instead? Let me shift again. Let me take on that 80% myself, shift that demand of what would I expect with them in person and how do I adapt? My sessions don't require necessarily using the keyboard and the mouse. If that's not a skill they necessarily have, my rule of thumb is always what's their point of success? Where can they be most successful? What kind of things can we do where they be successful? Let's build from success rather than focusing and working so much on the things that they can't do or won't do. What are the things where they are successful? And let's build a relationship from their success rather than building a relationship of me being that person coming into that environment and being like, oh, you can't do A, B, C, and D. So we're now going to work on A, B, C, and D, but you don't know me from the next person over. Like I'm a stranger to you. How can I focus instead on what you can do? Let's celebrate that. And let's work from that point of success instead. And what if client it has hearing issues or vision issues. Is that an automatic eliminator? Nope, not at all. Because just the same <laughs> as if I was in person, you know, and we had that, you know, that vision impact there. Like, okay, so how do I need to adapt? What do I need to talk about adapting the screen? And what's really great and what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of states actually have built-in support for this as well. So when we can actually start looking and advocating for our clients and educating our families and the sports team as to the options in the area, a lot of the school for the blind and a lot of the resources for blind, vision impaired in states have screen adapters, have different tools, have different plugins for computers. My clients, even if they have their vision impacted, they're still going to live in a world that is very computer dominated. So great. What speech and language skills can we work on while also still improving those skills of their ability to navigate, their ability to know what Chrome plugins are available to them to read the screen to them, pieces like that. Let's practice using those tools as well. Let's practice using their phones in a way where they can use it well and we can use those real life skills while building in that speech therapy skills of using telepractice. Let's hit this from two sides. Same with hearing impaired. You know, I've got many clients who've had hearing aids that they can actually, when I've worked closely and discussed with their audiologist, we've been able to patch their hearing aids directly into the computer. So therefore they're getting a lot clearer sound than it coming through the computer, out their speakers, in through the hearing aid or in through the cochlear implant and impacting that way. Like let's work together as a team. And I'm willing to work with anybody on the team 
how can we make this successful and give them access to this? Because guess what? Those skills connecting to me and telepractice are skills that are going to translate other places as well for them too, because they're going to be needing to use these devices and these computers in 2023. So how can we all work together as a team? So they're developing important skills and know-how of their vision and the options available to them or their hearing devices and the options available to them. And how can we work together on this one? Another thing I've heard often is if the therapist can't really understand or or like articulation, if the sound doesn't come across clearly over telepractice, then, you know, it's an automatic, again, eliminate that client because their speech intelligibility, it's really severe. And, you know, I'm not comfortable with my ability to assess that. Any comment on that scenario, how you would work with that? One, I love that they're asking that because that's a real good ethical question to be stepping back and thinking about. Like, can I keep having the sessions working on S and Z when I can't hear the S and Z clearly in the session? Like it just goes quiet. And what a lot of people don't realize is that just about every platform out there that we're using has it built in for that noise suppression. And the reason is, is think about if you're listening to an audiobook or to a podcast, or if you're going super old school and you're listening to a radio show, the last thing you want to hear are those fricatives and those affricates super loud in the microphone. You know, that's why they all have the guards when you're watching like, you know, really professional podcasts and radio shows. They've all got the filter in front of the microphone. Why? To cut down on all those S and Z and those Fs and those CHs that just come across so harsh in the microphone. What people don't realize is the platforms have a built-in where they're suppressing that. And very often headphones and microphones have the suppression built in as well. So there's a big piece. Can you do articulation therapy and phonology therapy well via telepractice? Yes, but you need to be able to understand how the technology works. You know, my biggest thing I tell people is I'm not going to tell you what platform to use best because I don't know what your situation is. You know, there's too many factors for me to decide for you what the best platform is. But you need a platform that will allow you to turn on what's called original sound. So you need a platform that's actually built more for musicians because you'll see a lot of musicians and voice teachers and stuff will use only specific platforms. Why? Because then they can shut those off and they can hear all the sounds and nothing's being cut out. It's nice to kind of have that noise filtering built in because then you're not hearing all the background noises. You're not hearing mom in the kitchen and you're not hearing the blocks crashing and the toddler screaming and things like that. But then it's cutting down on the sounds that you can hear. So I tell people always check to see what platform you're using. See if it's cutting down on those sounds for you. And then check the microphone or the headphones. If they got headphones with the mic attached to it, your client, check to make sure that those aren't actually eliminating it. Because like I know for one example, not the only example, one example in Zoom is that both ends can turn on that original sound. Because here's the thing. If you're not hearing your client modeling that sound, they're not hearing you modeling it probably as well. So this is an ethical consideration here is, can I keep doing this therapy session if neither of us are hearing what we're supposed to be hearing here? And so for one example is Zoom has been predominantly used with musicians and voice teachers. And so they actually have the button that you can turn on both ends for original sound to make sure they're hearing your beautiful S's and Z's and you can hear their attempts at those S's and Z's and those articulation pieces back. Can you do ethical articulation and phonology therapy via telepractice? Absolutely. You just have to know how the technology works and be willing to work around that, find the ways and find the technology you need to be able to do it ethically in your sessions. Another related question has to do with interpreters. I don't know how much experience you have working with clients whose first language may be something other than English, but what are some different ways that you could be potentially working with clients if they speak another language? I mean, their first language is something different than the SLPs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My rule of thumb, even being an international SLP, is seeing first, is there somebody who would be better in country in doing it with me or better in their area or better at this being, you know, understanding that first language better. If not, and oftentimes I can't, I can't find somebody either. I can't find somebody who speaks that language and then has a specialty I do or any combination of those. But so often, yeah, I've absolutely, you can work with interpreters here, similar to how we would in the schools in those situations of, you know, how do we work? The problem is you got to make sure that that interpreter is highly educated as well as to what their role is. I think we've all run into that situation where maybe you've been running an assessment with an interpreter or something like that. We thought we'd covered all the bases and then, you know, we hear them interpreting and then we hear them giving a clue. 
at the same time, you know, those pieces. So, you know, I think it's just anytime you're using a support person, an e-helper, a paraprofessional, an interpreter, anyone there is really having that open line of communication, you know, that mutual respect for each area to really understand, like, here's what we're going to be working on and here's where I need your support and here's where I need your information. I've had so much fantastic support from interpreters who've been able to tell me things like, you know, oh, well, that's actually really normal. Like every kid has that error at first, you know, it's pretty typical error or, you know, oh, we actually don't talk about that in our culture. Like that's not something they would know because it's not something that's appropriate to talk about when it seems like it's something innocuous for my culture. They've really been able to also build my cultural competencies often too. the interpreters have. So I think it's fantastic to be able to work with interpreter, but I think it's important to also not just jump in and assume that. The interpreter already knows what the game plan is and knows what's expected of them. Really having that open communication before and after a session. Here's what went really well. Next time, you know, I'd like us to do this, this, this instead. Or, you know, did you notice this? Have you seen this before? Really having that mutual respect and open communication. Interpreters can be a a fantastic tool in your toolbox when working international or with clients who speak other languages. Thank you. And so far, we've talked a lot about team members that are cooperative, but I think It'll be beneficial to talk a little bit about either family members who aren't really willing to be a team participant, a willing participant, or just anytime there's a lot of resistance from that person that you're relying on to really enable a session. How would you handle that? One, I always, always start my clients with a trial. So I always start with just a four-week trial because one... You know, I actually got a lot more resistance now post-COVID than I did before. Before that, nobody had heard about it, didn't know it was necessarily an option. It wasn't just as well known. Post-2020, I have found that more and more people, nope, we did that during COVID. I'm not doing that again. We hated that. And, you know, very, very resistant in that way. And so what I found is giving everyone a trial, everyone gets a trial. Even if they're like, we've been looking for a teletherapist, everyone gets a trial because we don't know. I'm feeling out the client. The client is feeling out me. We're figuring out the family. We're figuring out whether this dynamic as a whole will work. So everyone starts with a trial. And then I set really, really clear expectations of what support I need from the team, whether it's the team in the school, whether it's the team at home, wherever my client is connecting from. Here's the support I need. Here's what my expectations are. What are your expectations of me? And making sure that both sides have expectations that the other side can meet because sometimes families have expectations where I'm like, that's just not feasible. Can we compromise on this? Can we work this out? And same with families. Like I can't be there every single week at the end of session to talk with you about the progress. Can I come in every other week or can I call in at another time during the week? Can we schedule a separate time for my meeting with you? Things like that. So really making sure that we set the expectations and have really, really open dialogue, you know, and sometimes that dialogue can get uncomfortable as an SLP, you know, well, I saw this and I know they can do it. They're just not doing it for you. And really being able to kind of sit in that space with families as they're working through this uncomfortable thing and giving you a chance at telepractice. So maybe that wasn't their first choice or what they wanted and seeing how can we all work together as a team and together to really see if we can have this open dialogue and work through this. And at the end of the four weeks, decide whether or not we want to continue at that point. Also making sure that I point out the research because so many families feel telepractice is just a thing now because 2020 happened. Really pointing out that we've got research going back to 2010, showing that absolutely this can be equal to and even better than in-person sessions for the correct clients and clinician combinations. So let's talk a little bit about Some ways that you might educate families who firmly believe that in-person is better. What are some things that we could tell them to let them open up their minds a little bit to this trial? You know what? I like to make sure they hear all their concerns because it's easy for me to assume what their concerns are when it comes to telepractice, especially being post-2020. But I'm not necessarily always accurate. When I really hear their concerns and validate their concerns, that sounds like it was a really difficult experience when March of 2020 happened. Or okay, I can understand that you're concerned that you don't have the space or the bandwidth at home, you know, or trying to protect those after school hours. You don't know when you're going to fit this in around all these other obligations that you have or these other situations you have. So making sure that I'm really discussing and validating those and then providing examples for ways that maybe we could troubleshoot this and work around it and give it a trial. Again, that trial is so important. 
getting them to at least just try it because I think it gives all of us information. Sometimes it's not a good fit. Sometimes telepractice is not right. And that trial really gives us all that ability to kind of test some things out and try it. But then also really making sure that I'm citing that research. It's often easy for me to say, oh, it's great. Telepractice is awesome. It works fantastic. I can kind of sometimes sound like a salesman in that respect. But when I can actually like send them research articles and be like, if you're interested in reading, here's some research that's been done that shows that telepractice is equivalent to in-person sessions when done ethically and appropriately. All right. Thank you so much. And let's have a couple of more questions and then I'm going to open it up to the questions that were, are in the chat. Also wanted to just kind of see if you could comment on some more ethical considerations when it comes to client candidacy. We did talk about the intelligibility if, if you truly can't hear or decipher what your client is saying. Any other comments that you would want to make in regards to that? What happened during 2020, you know, versus what's happening now, especially with a health emergency potentially going away here very soon, you know, there's kind of this shift in what is ethical. And I think especially in March of 2020, like I want to commend every SLP who had to dive into telepractice at that point in time, because you were absolutely making sure that there was no client abandonment. Like that was top priority is that there was no client abandonment, that you were still giving to those clients. And again, like you mentioned at the beginning, Korean, like we are a giving profession, you know, and, but now we've stepped far enough away from that, that we need to begin looking at, okay, well, what does our code of ethics say when we're ethically making decisions and holding these sessions? And like, am I aware of what HIPAA concerns there are as to who else is hearing my session in my home, their session at their location? Am I sure that we can do this competently. And I don't just mean competently as I can do an effective therapy session. That's an ethical consideration, especially cultural competency. And I think it's an area that a lot of people kind of forget about. It's fresh in my mind just because I work international, but cultural competency is not just an international standpoint. It's uh, within our own country. We have many, many cultures within our country and making sure that I have cultural competency to be working with this client, be working with this family and respecting where they're coming from when they're coming and joining my session their family background and their belief systems and their upbringing and all these pieces that are impacting what they're bringing into the session as much as I'm aware of what I'm bringing into that session. And can I set mine aside to really meet them where they are? And there's a big cultural competency expectation ethically that we need to make sure that we're following. And again, family relocations and that licensure one is a big one when it comes to ethics is to making sure that we are following licensing guidelines when working with clients, especially if clients are moving, visiting, vacationing, et cetera. And you did mention HIPAA, and I did want to kind of end with that, and then we'll start taking the questions. But what are some considerations for HIPAA, and what is the latest on the PHE? So right now, it is highly, highly expected to end in May. So when the public health emergency ends, it was just extended. It was supposed to end in January. President Biden extended it again. And right now, when it expires in May, when it expires in May, that means everything that's attached to the PHE will go away within 60 days. So that's going to impact a lot of aspects of what we do. Up to this point, HIPAA rules have been relaxed under the public health emergency in order to increase access. Legally, it has been relaxed. ASHA has still had expectations of us to be HIPAA compliant, still, especially as we moved away from March of 2020. But that is when they will no longer be giving just kind of freedom to HIPAA. That's when we're going to start seeing more of the court cases coming out as people are becoming more and more HIPAA non-compliant and we need to become more HIPAA compliant. And I think a common misunderstanding is, okay, well, I work for the schools, so I'm FERPA. Yeah, we're still medical professionals, so we technically have to follow HIPAA and FERPA, even if we're in the public schools. So it's important that we understand those aspects of HIPAA and that we're taking those into consideration, especially when we work in telepractice. There's a whole high-tech aspect of HIPAA there that we need to be aware of. And that's going to be a big one when that PHE goes away, potentially 60 days after May when they end it. And just understanding what it all means, especially depending on if you're W-2, if you're 1099, what your setting is, all of those aspects. Absolutely. Well, I think it's time to take some questions from our listeners. We have a question here in regards to any suggestions for camera, lighting, and certain techniques that have worked for you? 
So I am a big fan of not using the built-in camera. So I'm a big person of having an external camera. One, built-in cameras have a lot of limitations just because of the size of the hardware that's built into your laptop. So I'm a big person on external cameras. Multiple reasons. One, you can get really, really high-end cameras right now. Like my camera right now is extremely, extremely wide angle, but I can zoom it in as well. My sessions with my clients really distracted. I can zoom in. So all they can see is Miss Tara's head, you know, or I can make it wider, see more of my office, give more space, not feel like I'm so up in their face. I also love it for including my clients and other things. So I have multiple cameras actually connected to my computer. I have one that is the weather camera. I mean, my clients don't get snow where they're located. And so they love when they cop onto the session saying, what's the weather in Colorado, Miss Tara? You know, and I'll take the camera and we've got one. They'll point out my side window and so they can see my side yard and talk about what the weather is and what they think the temperature is. And we'll, lots of Fahrenheit to Celsius going on over here. <laughs> Thank goodness for Google because I still can't do it in my head. Or sometimes I'll take it and I'll paste it in a whiteboard so I can draw something on a whiteboard. I also use that separate camera. I like having a regular camera as a document camera and not just a document camera because then I'm actually able to use it as a weather camera or point it at my desk, use it as a document camera to show games, etc. I'm very big on really, really good lighting, having making sure that you're well lit so your client can see you well and so you can see them well. So I have actually a variety of lights. I've got lamps in all my corners, just regular household stand-up lamps in all the corners of my room to kind of get rid of shadows in the corner of my room. But I also am very big on a, a light that goes behind your camera so it can, you're well lit, not just by the glow of your screen, because that's kind of a creepy ghostly look when you're so well lit by the screen. So I like a really good light. I love having a light that I can go from cool to warm colors in and dim it as well. Bright lights give me terrible migraines. So I have to have lights that don't flicker and that I can turn the dim down really, really well. My current favorite right now are Lytra beams because they give me all those options. They give me all those options on the computer. So I'm not messing with the light during the session. I can actually change it on the remote on the computer. If suddenly I realize the sun is setting and I'm getting darker or it's just too bright, I'm getting a headache. I can change all that without like actually having to get up against the screen and distracting the client during the session. But yeah, those are my favorite cameras and lights for right now. And I'm also a big believer in having more than one screen. If you're going to really be doing telepractice, I'm a firm believer you need at least two screens in order to have a well-streamlined session. Love it. So changing gears, different topic. There's a question here that says, hey, have you ever needed to have a parent beside the client for all sessions to assist with behavior? Absolutely. Able to be independent. Absolutely. Absolutely. My goal has always been to eventually be able to transition the parent back. So the parent and I have a lot of discussions about that. So all my sessions run for a certain period of time. And at the end of my sessions, I always have time to meet with the parent and discuss with the parent what we covered, you know, what our goals are, what their goals are, what they're seeing at home. Benefit of being completely private practice and being able to set those structures up how I want. But a big conversation there we have is when that parent is the parent who has to be there to help manage the behaviors is one how I want those kind of behaviors managed in the room. I find that I can be really empowering to the parents in this in really helping them learn ways to work with those behaviors to see how we can like see what's triggering and see what I need to change, see what we need to change about the space to help the client be more successful in that space. Making sure that the parents really know my expectations well, you know, because I'll have the parents who'll be like, sit still. And then, oh, okay, that was my mess up. I need to have a conversation with parents of like, I do not care if Johnny is spinning in his chair. Johnny's on topic and we are making great progress. If spinning on that chair and getting that input is what's helping him focus on me instead, I don't need him to sit there with a quiet body and hands in his lap. I need Johnny to be successful in what our goals are. And our goal right now is not actually sitting still. It's never going to be a goal I'm going to write for one of my clients, you know. But then if I do have a client parent who needs to be there the whole time, we start talking about how can we start fading back? You know, how can we even start fading back? Like maybe first we're starting with verbal reminders, but then maybe the parent can, we just have a picture on the table that the parent can point to when the client needs to remember to change their brain channel or whatever the behavior is that's causing an impact on our session. And then how can I start fading that parent out? Maybe instead of that icon being on the desk, now I have that same icon and I'm holding it up in our session. It's kind of that visual reminder for that client. And that parent's now sitting a little farther back or now they're sitting in the doorway and the door jam on their cell phone, not paying attention. How can we start to fade them out to kind of give that intense if possible? But I've absolutely had those situations. I just have to make sure that I'm really open with the parents as to what my expectation is because it's not always the same and the parents are trying to guess as to my expectation and it's not fair. So we really have to work as that really good team to make sure we can work together and have that same expectation for what the sessions would look like and what success looks like in a session. Thank you. And another question about vacations and licensing. If a client is on vacation for a short period outside of the state of residency, 
would you then need to contact the licensing board of that state as well? Yes. And then we're talking about a week or less. I think the question is focused on if it's just a short period of time. Let them have their vacation and resume sessions when they return. But if for some reason they really want to insist on that, then one, getting a license within a week. I hope they've given you a lot of heads up on when their vacation is going to be because most licensing takes a while for a lot of states and a lot of paperwork. But yeah, no, don't risk your license. Here's the deal. A question I've heard way too often as well. How would they even know? Because you're connected to the internet. It's absolutely easy to know where you're connecting from and where the client is connecting from. And if they require a license, there's no time limit on it for many states. Some do. I know for a while, I don't know if it still is, but I know for a while, Virginia would let you do it for like 10 or 14 days or something like that. And then you had a license so you can check to see if that's an option, but that's more of the exception and less the rule, even one single day in another state. And it's, it can be a headache if like, I live really close to the Wyoming border. And so I have to be really, really careful of like, have the clients crossed over, you know, are they calling from grandma's house, which just happens to be just on the other side or things like that. Or I've got clients, you know, in countries overseas that are all very close together and making sure that we're still in the same country. But it's very, very important that you do not see them for any period of time if the licensing board requires you to be licensed, because then you put all the rest of your licenses at risk as well. Thank you. And I I see a really interesting question here. I think this might have to be our last one because of time. What do you know about the telemedicine machines that were made available to doctor's offices through the Affordable Care Act? Is that something we can access? Do you know anyone who has? And if so, how do we access this resource? I do know the machines you're discussing. I do not know any SLPs independent of doctor's offices who have been able to. This comes into that weird situation where we're only actually seen as a STEM profession and a medical field when it benefits the people putting constraints on us and when it would actually benefit us to be recognized as a STEM profession or medical professional, it's not usually doesn't come in our favor. And we're seen more as like educational therapists instead, even if we work in other places. So I believe that I have heard of some SLPs who have been able to access it because they rent space in a doctor's office. And so therefore the doctors had access to those all-in-one telemedicine machines. But I do not know those who have done it through the Affordable Care Act independently and been able to gain access personally. While those machines have had their benefits and definitely a financial benefit, I I have heard and seen, you know, I go to the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas to see kind of what the latest technology is out. And I have seen and I've talked to some of the creators of some of these devices, the telemedicine, more side of things for more of the doctor's office stuff, but talked about to them as an SLP. I've also seen some limitations to those machines. I've seen some benefits. It's kind of all built in and it's secure and you've got all these, you know, constraints. I've seen that we were able to get similar safety and security and HIPAA compliance with other platforms that give us more flexibility in our session than necessarily what a doctor needs in their sessions, since those types of sessions would be extremely different. I have not tried and I've not explored. I don't know personally, and I know many telepractitioners, I don't know any who have personally gone after that just because of the flexibility they can get using other HIPAA compliant platforms instead. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tara. We truly appreciate your research, education, and expertise that you provided in determining who is the right fit for telepractice, SLP, and client. I know I personally actually learned quite a bit from you tonight, and that is one of the things I really love about telepractice is there's so much to learn, and it continues to evolve. And please be sure to join us for our next episode in this series as we will be speaking on exploring multidisciplinary team approach via telepractice. Have a good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us for tonight's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you're a part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. 
Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.